Good morning. I'm going to read from the book of James, chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. If you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bible, it's on page 1197. I'll give you a moment to get there. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. This is the word of God. Okay, so the new Marvel movie is out. Infinity War. Anybody seen it? Yeah. <laughs> Good. Good. You know, we love these uh, Avenger-type movies. You know, they're all they're superpowers. It's like somebody who is just extraordinary, right? And they have the capacity to do something that ordinary people normally wouldn't have. And there's something about that that's just attractive to us. I mean, maybe all of us kind of wish we came across some radioactive goop and then emerged from it having a superpower or whatever the case may be. We're drawn in, into that story. And here's the deal. I mean, simply put, James is telling us today that every single one of us have a superpower, basically. That we all have the capacity with our words to actually shape the trajectory of somebody's life for good or for bad. Imagine the power that's possessed by your tongue and what it can say and what it can do. And that's what this text is all about. Basically, it's all about the power of your words. And he says right from the beginning that your words have the power of life or death. Because that's the case, he says, not many of you should presume to be teachers because you're held more accountable for that. The more you talk, the more trouble you get into. And some of you have seen this as well. 
If there's somebody, an authority figure in your life who's teaching and they stumble or they fall, the damage, the shrapnel that comes from that is extraordinary. So he says, your, your words have the power of life or death. And we just heard this read, but to remind you in verses 3 through 6, consider again what's being said. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or... Take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it make, makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. So he's using different illustrations to prove his point. And the first two that he has here show how a small instrument can shift the direction of something much larger and he starts with horses here I know some of you are equestrians in our midst and you understand how uh, how to control horses uh, those of us who maybe don't have that skill are rightly intimidated by the sheer uh, force and strength of a horse if you know how to control one and you throw yourself you feel pretty good about it if you don't it can be a terrifying experience. I've had that a couple of times in my own life. In our, our own family's history, uh, apparently my great-great-grandfather was the largest horse, uh, had the largest horse farm. What do you call those things? Farm, ranch, in, uh, in Washington and was known for being able to train wild horses. Everybody would bring them and he would, he'd break those horses. We found a an old family Bible from the 1800s and it had a list of how people had died along the way and one of them was a five-year-old kid who was kicked in the head by a horse and died. It was just listed there and life was so very, very different certainly on a farm and in those days as well. But to think about the power of a horse and the capacity that you have if you put the bit and to turn it one way or another and James says that's what your words are like. The power of your words to be able to steer and to shift the course of something much larger. And then he takes ships as an example as well. They're very, very similar. Massive vessels headed toward a destination. They're moved by strong winds. And yet you just move the rudder a little bit and it goes in a different direction as well. I've, I was just remembering again a story I've told before but one time when we were at a, a, uh, like a resort area where they had windsurfing and I decided to try it. On, on my own without any instruction about how to do it and I was really good about going out um, the problem was I didn't know how to come back in so I got farther and farther uh, out and eventually um, they had to come rescue me because I, I was not able to come back in got uh, it was a very unpleasant experience a little little humming I actually thought I might be dying when I, when I was out there and I had got sun poisoning and all kinds of stuff and I was wondering is anyone going to come get me and I could not figure out how to get back in so frustrating but just not being you know steering in the wrong direction and going and all of a sudden it was it was leading to potential death for me seriously and yet if you know how to control it and turn it, you can take a ship, a vessel, and go wherever. Your words are like that. Like a giant massive vessel being turned in one direction or another. The power of your words. When we five and a half years ago, just, or six maybe, started gathering, considering, you know, Redeemer Church, before it even had a name, uh, one of the uh, people who was involved, we were sharing each other's stories of 
how do we come to faith in Christ? And um, some of you may remember one man who grew up, um, who grew up in an Asian culture and his, his father never expressed affection to him. Never said words like, I love you and I care for you and you matter. And so his whole life was shaped by that reality in trying to win the affection of a father who would never speak it to him. So when he heard the gospel, the good news of Christ, where God says, I love you and you matter, it opened up something in his heart that had been closed off by a father who never spoke those words again. And so in tears, he was saying, I heard for the first time, you matter. And that's how he embraced Christ. And started following in his ways. The power of words. The ones that you say that hurt. Are the ones that are never spoken that you long to hear. Incredible power to shape and to shift. And to move in just a little slight direction. And you know what happens if you're headed in one way. And you make just the tiniest shift. And you over time end up in a different destination. James says that's what your words are like. There's a third illustration here. It's a spark starting a fire. Your words, like a tiny spark that can make a consuming fire rage. My parents live in Portland, Oregon, and just this summer, a teenage boy was playing with some fireworks in the Columbia River Gorge. If any of you have been there before, just beautiful forestry and waterfalls. And uh, well, you probably know what happened next. Uh, started a flame, it got out of control, burned hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of acres of uh, just beautiful forestry gone and the ash fell on my parents house for a while as well and they were you know tens and tens of miles away this is boy just having fun with uh, some fireworks he certainly he didn't intend to do it and we know what that's like I didn't mean to is uh, is a significant statement but the damage was done your words are the same way I didn't mean to say that. Damage done. I think I've told, I've read this in several places and I don't know who made this up, but just as an illustration, you know, somebody who spoke some words that did some damage, seeking out some wisdom from somebody. I've heard different stories on the top of a mountain or at the top of a belfry, whatever the case may be. And this man saying, okay, what I want you to do is take a piece of paper, rip it up and throw it to the wind. And they do that. And they say, now go and collect all the pieces of paper. And he says, it's impossible. I can't get that. And he says, so is the damage that you've done with your words. You can do the best you can to repair it, but that damage is deep. On the front end, seems like just a spark, but it can create a fire. So you have that power, right? Neuroscientists tell us that we remember everything we've ever seen and everything we've ever heard. How frightening is that concept? You're somewhere there in our amazing minds. Every word that's been spoken has been recorded. You may be aware of it, but so many of those things you're not. And yet they're shaping you. They're, they're directing the course of your life. The power of words. Consider the implications for a parent to a child. What are you saying? Or a sibling to a sibling. Or a spouse to a spouse. Even a child to a parent. Kids, what you say. We remember it has the power to shape and influence. You know, last week, Josie, if you were here, shared her testimony. And she was talking about Genesis 3. And she said, did God really say? You know, Satan was saying, did he really say 
this, Satan knows the power of speech and how to manipulate as well. You know, the Bible talks a lot about speech. The book of Proverbs say, Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So your words just kind of carelessly going around or like somebody just whipping a sword and piercing somebody. You may be a truth teller, which is great, but wisdom knows the right time to speak a word. Just because it's true doesn't mean it, mean it needs to be said. And there's a manner in which it is said and a time in which it is said as well. And when we do pre-marriage counseling and even in our, our own marriage as well, timing is very important about when you say something. You know, if somebody's tired or beaten up, it may be true, but it's not the right time to, to share. There's, it's a reckless word, a poorly timed word that can pierce like a sword. So Proverbs goes on to say, a man of knowledge uses words with restraint. You know, you know when to say something or even how to say something and when not to speak as well. This is wisdom. The book of Proverbs is a picture of uh, a father pulling a son who's growing up in adolescence and saying, here is how you become a man of God. This is what it looks like. A child of God. A, same thing for a mother to a daughter, a mother to a son. It's a parent figure speaking to a child. This is what it looks like. Here's the power of your words. In fact, it even says explicitly, the tongue has the power of life and death. So it's not just James that's using this language. We find it with Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived. The power of your words. That's a superpower, right? You have the power of life or death. So you're all very special people. We can all engage in the infinity war. And there's a war going on for souls, right? And your speech has some, some play in that. Will you use your words for life or death? Of course, we have a problem, don't we? You may want to say helpful things, to exercise restraint, to speak words of wisdom, the words of life, but you find something else happening altogether. You say something that you didn't want to say or that you think you didn't mean to say. And really, that's no surprise to James. Why? Because let's face it, this is a battle. <laughs> I mean, he's very straightforward. This is an infinity war going on. And the problem is here that the battle that we have is happening inside of us. The tongue is also, also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire in itself, set on fire by hell. That's pretty graphic language going on here. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. So if you find a desire to speak well, you know, to speak words of wisdom to others, but you also find that it's hard to do so, this is why. According to the biblical narrative, our natural tendency is to find a perverse delight in belittling or manipulating others or blaming others. Just how we're, how we're wired. Again, this goes back to the same structure we used when we were talking about apologetics, the defense of the faith. Creation, fall, and redemption. The fall is very pervasive. And as a result, it's tainted or corrupted everything. So we want to do good, like Paul says in Romans 7, but I find that I can't execute on that. So what's happening here? There's a sin nature, as the Bible calls it, that 
fallen part of who we are that's always battling against us. And even though we want to do good, we find we're unable to execute that. So the tongue can be toxic because of sin. It's very natural for us to use our words in ways that destroy others rather than build them up. Why is it so easy to trash talk on the playground? It just seems to come naturally. Why is it so hard to speak a positive word? And just because everybody's doing it doesn't suggest that you ought to as well. In fact, I would say that's probably a good reason if you're following Christ not to. <laughs> the everybody's doing it phrase, right, suggests that you can be different than that. But we know it's hard. Like so many other things, how do we fight this battle? We find that it starts at the heart level. Jesus is very aware of this. Listen to what he says. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. What you say is simply coming from what's inside of you. So when everything's okay, and you can control your speech, you look pretty good. What happens is circumstances stir that up and given the right context, what's really inside is going to come out. It's not always bad. Sometimes we need that to find out what's inside of our heart. So when you start dealing with it, yes, there's some sort of external controls, but it's a heart issue like so many other things. You can't get away from it when you open up your Bible. Jesus and the entire Bible drives things down to the heart level and says, it's not just about what you say, it's about what's happening in your heart. Because you can say the right things, and yet your heart is seething. And that's not pleasing to God. So we need to deal with our hearts, like so many other cases. What you say is just coming out of what's inside of you. So what's inside of you needs to be changed regularly. If you really have any hope for progress here, the battle starts within. And the Bible's clear. We can't change our hearts. We're in desperate need of the Spirit. He's the one who brings transformation. He's the one who takes stony hearts and makes them flesh. So that's at least the starting point there, is to say, God, I need your Spirit. Convict me, cleanse me, motivate me, change me. And that's where you start. If you're not bothered by how your words are shaping others, then you're simply out of step with the Spirit if you don't care. But if it bothers you, that's troubling, then you start there by saying, God, I need you. But then you don't expect God's Spirit to obey, right? The commands in the Bible, and there are some commands that James has here about using our speech. The commands are for us to obey. God's Spirit's not going to obey that command for you. He will give you the power to do it. So that's where we start. But then we have a responsibility as well. He'll convict. He'll empower. But yours is to obey. And frankly that takes some intentionality. A lot of things in the Bible when it says hey here's the behavior that you should be aiming for. You don't just say that's kind of nice. I don't want to put any work into it. I'd like to arrive without any effort. It's just that, that that's not how we grow. I mean that's not how you do anything. If you just take lifting weights for example. You want to bench press 225 pounds and right now you can throw up 55 pounds. How are you going to get there? You're just going to show up one day and say, God, give me strength. And bam, there you go. You start just ripping out those things. It, of course not. You got to start. You have to be intentional. You got to take steps. You got to do the reps. And over time, you start seeing results. And your, your speech is going to be the same way. 
it's going to be similar. So if you have any sense of like, yes, I would like to lean more towards the power, using my words for the power of life than the power of death, then here's some really, I'm going to give you some practical ways to start doing that. One of them is inside your bulletin, actually. If, if they got into every single one, there should be an insert, a half page insert there. That's just a challenge, an exercise here. If you want to do this, everybody find that? It says for two days, okay? You could change it to one day. You could change it to one hour if you want to. But I think, and it, this does take intentionality, but if you're like, okay, does everybody have that? Does anybody not have it? You don't have it? Because there should be, so, I don't know if it made it in every bulletin, but... Um, Ted, would you go see there's some more? So here's some more bullets. So it just says this. For two days, do not. If you really want to do this, for two days, do not do this. Number one, don't gossip or don't, sp don't sp spread a bad report. So you have information that would put somebody else in a negative light. You're just refusing to say it. Or number two, don't complain. So complain. Who, who didn't have that? Raise your hands. Don't complain. So... Oh, seriously, is it ever going to be spring? That would be a complaint, for example, the weather. Now, we know it's kind of here. We know it's sort of here already, but it, c it could be anything like that. Or, you know, I mean, you come up with a thousand examples if you're really thinking about it. Don't blame shift or make excuses. So if there's a situation, you say, oh, well, he cut me off in traffic, so it's really not his fault that I, <laughs> whatever you did as a result or whatever the case may be or you know, for siblings, you know, he's the one who started it or something like that. Don't defend yourself. That's a hard one. But if you find that you're uh, trying to justify your behavior or your words, you're really defending yourself. And finally, don't boast. You know, things like, I'm, at least I'm not as bad as that person, um, might be an example as well. So, in the, in the Bible, in the gospel, the, the good news of Christ always says, put off these things and put on these things instead. So it's not just refusing to do some things, it's also doing some things positively. So on the positive side, do listen reflexively. That is, ask a lot of questions. It's something we don't naturally do. So you're listening to, to understand somebody instead of to reply, right? How do I understand what's going on inside of this person? Just listen reflexively. It's not for you to correct, just to listen and gain understanding. And then affirm others positively. It's not just not saying these things, it's saying something positive about somebody, whatever that may be, and express thanks and praise. So positively speaking, look for reasons to say thanks. You know, thanks for the rain that waters the earth. And we're not looking for thanks with cynicism laced all around it. It's just really trying to train your heart. See, one of the things that I think is very challenging about what we call the Christian life is we just, like so many things, want it to happen, but there, there's some intentionality here. There's some with, like, and for we talk about to become more like Christ. You have to put some effort into that, right? You need to train yourself in godliness. Anybody who's trained for anything, there's people running the marathon right now, right? Today's the Flying Pig Marathon. They trained for a long time to be able to get to that stamina. Now, once they're finished, if they stop training, it's only going to take a week. So they can't run very far anymore. So it's continual. We need to do this all the time. 
And it gets overwhelming, but here God's focused our hearts to say, what about our speech? How do we leverage that? And this whole exercise, if you're serious about doing it, will show you how desperately you need to return to Christ again and again. How far short we fall of these targets. But of course, the grace and the mercy that's here for us as well. And here's the deal. It is an important battle to fight. I mean, the last thing that James says is, God's glory is at stake. Human dignity is at stake in this battle. He says it this way, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. This is exactly what James has been frustrated with from the beginning. You say you're a believer, but you're not behaving like it. In your thought life, right? The things that you think, in the things that you do, your behavior, and in the things that you say, your speech. All these are to be brought into alignment. That's the goal or the target. That what I think, what I do, and what I say, all brought into alignment. And that's fed, of course, by what's happening inside of us by our heart. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. So if your heart is not right, if what's inside of you is tainted, then it's going to show in the way that you say those things. So how do we get that fresh water to come and to align with what we desire? James sees the inconsistency. We praise God one second, you know, and then the next we're cursing men who are made in his image and women. We lift up the God of the universe in one moment and tear down people. Next who he says, my glory is in them. That trademark characteristic, by the way, really, this behavior he's describing is reserved for the devil. He came to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's his job. So you look a little bit more like him when you're destroying others with your words than if you're claiming to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus came to give life. We follow Jesus. Mankind made uniquely in God's image is the crown of his creation no matter who they are. So our primary God-honoring task is to dignify and to build others up, to speak words of life. The proverb says this, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. What if your words gave life to other people? A fountain of life. Most of us want that kind of refreshment in our lives. We've tasted enough of the salt water. We want that, that wonderful, refreshing, life-giving pop in our lives <laughs> that comes from speaking words of life as well. So just some thoughts really for application here too. What do you do with all this stuff? And the first thing I would suggest is say I'm sorry. If, if you even for a moment thought of something that you've said or done that may have hurt somebody else. A good starting point is to say, I'm sorry. I mean, da damage may have been done, but it's good to go and say, I know my words hurt or offended or wounded, and I'm sorry for that. If you've offended someone, that's a great starting point. And let me suggest, too, that if, if um, in, in your speech and you're trying to control your tongue and not say things that you'll regret saying later, 
Let me recommend that you start with God first. Be honest with him. I'm thinking especially of verbal processors such as myself. Process things with God. You know, take your, your anger and your frustration with a situation or something that's happening and, and process it with God. We call it prayer. <laughs> but, but some of us forget about that. Like, let's process this with God first. Sometimes if, if I'm responding to something, in, like in an email, that's really got me going, you know, emotional, I'll just write an email first and put it in the draft thing and then wait a day or two and read it again. And often my response changes after I've had a chance to kind of sort things through. Now, the worst thing you can do is accidentally hit send. <laughs> Before, so you got to be very, very careful with that. I've <laughs> been a couple of emails. You're like, ah, oh, so they're getting what I really feel, but I'm not sure that's the right thing. In the right time, there's a wisdom and a process for working through those emotions that are deep, but sometimes the initial response is not wise. It's not tempered, and it's not helpful. I'm really not a big fan of emails either. I think phone calls, talks are way better, for, especially when there's deep emotions involved. But when you talk about controlling your tongue, then give it some time. In fact, I would suggest that you count to 10 before you speak. If you find that you often say things that you regret, or the fool, you get caught up in the heat of the moment, just learn to be patient and not speak immediately. Thomas Jefferson said, you know, if you're angry, count to 10 before you speak. If you're really angry, 100. <laughs> it's a long time that passes, right? 10 seconds of silence, if we did it right now, would make most of us uncomfortable. So just give yourself some time. And I think that's especially true in the heat of a moment, maybe if you're having some marital spat or a disagreement over a, an issue that's happening out there. Just... Give yourself some time and count to 10. Before you speak, wait. That's, James has already said that. You know, he said, you just got to be patient. You know, listen before you speak. Some more practical advice, and it seems, seems kind of vague, but practice gratitude. Thankfulness is the antidote of the ancients for many of our besetting sins. If you read a lot of the church fathers, they talk a lot about gratitude to correct many of our things like discontentment, which it spills over into our speech. Say complaining, for example. The antidote to that is actually gratitude. When you focus on being grateful for things, it sort of takes out the power of all the things you can be ungrateful for. It shifts again, just like a rudder, the, the direction of your soul. So you're looking at the things you can give, you can be thankful for. You know, if you ever go travel overseas and go to a place, oftentimes maybe that has fewer material resources, you find people, it's a strange phenomenon that are just filled with gratitude for what they have. They're pouring out everything they have before you and they have so little. And we struggle with how much we have and our lack of gratitude or complaining about things, for example. Why isn't there any food? And there's plenty of food all around us. Some people who have very little are grateful and want to share. Well, how do you describe it? They've pra they practice gratitude. There's something about having less that gives you sometimes a framework for saying, I'm thankful. It's not about how much you have. But we have to practice that because the lie that we believe is, especially in a place with a lot, we need more to be grateful. It's not true. Our hearts shifty are going to be guiding us in a different direction. So practice gratitude.
Ann Voskamp in A Thousand Gifts. I know some of you have read that book. Is it a thousand or ten thousand? Okay, I thought so. <laughs> There's ten thousand. Just uh, a, a book where she just practices gratitude. Says, when I give thanks for the seemingly microscopic, I make a place for God to grow within me. Just the small things in life. So practicing that is helpful. Lots of practical things here. And maybe, maybe you just want to choose one of these, but why not invest positively in somebody else's account? I mean, one of the things you have an opportunity to do is to say, how can I say words of life? To be what, would it, what, would it, what are words of life I could speak to that person? And you start seeing people as opportunities to bless with your speech. And the last thing I want to say here is a word to everybody that, okay, you got superpowers. I get it. You know, right? You have words of, words have tremendous power. But you're really not that powerful. And here's what I mean by that. Christ can overcome our biggest blunders towards others. Though the words that you said that have wounded or alienated people, Christ is bigger than those words. And the words that have been spoken to you that have shaped and shifted you, the deepest wounds you've received, Christ is bigger than those. There's no barrier that Christ can overcome. I want you on the one hand to see James is saying, the power of your words matters. But at the same time, Christ is always greater than those. And isn't it amazing that when God created everything back in Genesis 1, he spoke things into existence? God said, let there be light. And from chaos, he brought order. The gospel says the same thing. From the chaos of words that have been said to you, Christ can bring something redemptive, something beautiful, something affirming and positive. In fact, it's the backdrop of chaos where Christ rushes in most clearly. Now that doesn't give you a reason to go and speak poorly of others so that you can see Christ do amazing things in their lives. Far be it. James is saying you're not thinking at all like a follower of Jesus. You're thinking like a follower of the devil. There's no excuse here for our words, but there is an opportunity to see that God can still speak redemptively. Think of the power of words in your life. What have people said to you that have shaped who you've become in a way that's negative? You know, Christ can use that. You know, if you've heard you're no, you're no son of mine or whatever, here's the words that, that God says. I value you above all other things. You are my son. You are my daughter. And here's the proof. I died for you. I gave my life for you so that you could hear the words, well done, good and faithful son. Well done, good and faithful daughter. There's no condemnation for you. If you grew up hearing you're worth nothing, you'll never amount to anything. God says you matter so much. I've given everything for you. I'm giving you a new name. I'm preparing a place for you in heaven. Those are the words that we need to listen to. And we know that the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? That system around us is going to be speaking something different. Even our own sinful nature is going to be saying something. The devil himself will whisper lies. So you need to hear the voice of God that says, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. Though people have said or done things otherwise, this is the meat of the gospel. This is why people who hear that and understand that, run to Christ. And that's why also we need to run again and again. Because we start believing those lies and they're simply not true. So this morning, 
Know that you have a certain power to shape and to shift. But know that the power of the gospel is even greater. That's the good news of Christ. You know, this, this um, week I went to a, an evangelism conference on Tuesday. And, it, you know, it was, it was interesting and good. And the heart of it was listening to, uh, to understand rather than listening to reply. And we were talking about apologetics the past four weeks. And this guy's experience in, in life as well says that he thinks where we touch people the closest is to meet them in their suffering. That the greatest apologetics we can do is less about truth-telling, saying here's the propositions you must receive, but about entering into other people's sufferings and on that level being able to bring truth. But you start with that entering the suffering. And this is what's so powerful about the gospel is that Christ and the cross entered into our suffering, knows the words of shame being spoken to him, take them on so that we could hear the voice of God saying, you are my beloved. Father, I pray for our own speech patterns that we'd be profoundly influenced by the words of James and personally, especially when I get a lot of lists like this and maybe some practical things to do, it can be a little bit overwhelming. So I pray that just one of these things would be taken away. Maybe we're willing to do this exercise or perhaps there's one person we need to go say, I'm sorry to, uh, but... Don't let this moment uh, pass, Father. I speak into our own hearts. If your spirit is convicting us, if maybe we've not heard the voice of God saying, uh, you're my beloved, that we would recognize that because the, the offer is there. It's ours but to hear and say yes. Or maybe we need to go to somebody and say, you know, I know my words have impacted you negatively. Or perhaps it's just saying, Father, I don't want reckless words to come from my mouth anymore. Let me train in this because I realize the power of my words. So, Father, let our parting uh, voice, though, be the one of God who, in the person of Christ, said, um, you are mine and I am yours to the very end of the age. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.